Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. I am talking to Jenna Belzer, and I'm going to let Jenna introduce herself, but I just want to say we were chatting because we're working together on a project that hopefully we'll, we'll get to talk about. And as we're chatting, we're like, you know what? It would be so fun if we recorded a podcast together. And I, I just got really excited about that because I think Jenna has a lot to say. So Jenna, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll dive right in. First of all, thank you, Tivia, for having me. I'd repeat the exact same thing is I, I was so excited about this podcast and thought we'd have so much fun together. In addition, you've had many of my my friends on your podcast. And I so I said, I wanted to be part of that too, because it's obviously an incredible podcast, especially the title, Change the World Podcast, which what are we all trying to do in the communal world, if not change the world? So my name is Jenna, like you said, and I'm currently the program director for an organization called the Jewish Woman Entrepreneur and Executive, the JWE. And what we are is a network for Jewish women in business who are both trying to reach their person, their professional aspirations while also embracing their Jewish values. And the reason we exist is because we identify and realize that that's different than generally women in the working world and men in the working world. And we're our, our own unique thing. Previously, I was the founding director of a program at the Orthodox Union called the OU Impact Accelerator. And before that, my experience actually started in the investment banking world, which is where originally I thought I'd be for the next four years. And we can talk probably a little bit more about that. And then after that, I went to financial technology and I worked at two different fintech startups in between banking and then joining the OU. So I'm really intrigued. I want to hear about this jump from the financial world to the nonprofit world. How did that come about? I feel like there's a story there. <laughs> of course, there's a story. <laughs> so I guess a little bit more about myself is like many of us in the communal world or, you know, the do-gooders, it's my, my yearbook quote in high school was be the change you wish to see in the world. And that was always me, president of the high school, doing different things in college. And so when I went into banking, I did have a few friends who were like, hmm, that's interesting. And I think it really did help a certain part of myself. But I always had that itch of wanting to like so perfectly said on your podcast, change the world. And so when I was at one of the fintech companies I was at called Visible Alpha, I started volunteering for the Orthodox Union at the time because I had learned about a project they were trying to do, which was talking about it measuring impact in the nonprofit world. And something that's unique, and I don't know if everyone realizes it, is that in the nonprofit world, we don't, all, we don't have a bottom line, so to speak, that measures our impact. Whereas in a company, you can measure your dollars and cents. You know, it's not a clear, um, consistent measure along all nonprofits of how to measure what you're doing. And the Orthodox Union was getting involved in a project like this at NCSY, and I heard a presentation about it. I went over to the presenters after, and I said, I studied this in college. I'm really interested in it. I studied a lot of social impact in college, and I started volunteering with them. Six months into volunteering with them, they had told me that they were starting a new department at the Orthodox Union, which was meant to be a startup department. I was like an entrepreneurial project there. And it was meant to be working with nonprofit startups. And so it seemed really like this perfect 
match between having experience and working in the startup world and loving being scrappy and entrepreneurial, you know, different than entrepreneurship. And you could probably speak a lot to that, but the entrepreneurial qualities and also being able to work in the, the communal world, which was something I cared about. More specifically, I'll even share from a personal perspective, especially because now in my role at the JWE, I really value and try to bring in more of, you know, bringing our full selves to work and everything like that is when I was deciding, should I make this jump from the financial world to the nonprofit world, you know, from the startup world to uh, the Jewish world, every, that entire jump. I remember specifically my mother saying to me, this kind of funny thing, my sister-in-law is a teacher. And my mother said to me, like, aren't you jealous of her? Or are you jealous of her? And that was for two reasons. One was that she was working in a role that she's really passionate about. She's very passionate about special needs and she's a special needs teacher. And the second is that, this is a funny thing to say, but she had more of a life. Like she could see her friends at night and I was working around the clock. I was managing a team in India. And so literally like I was up at 3 a.m., you know, talking to them and then, and it was crazy. And so I think, whereas I didn't, you know, there's a lot of benefits of being in the communal world um, and particularly the Jewish communal world if you value being on the calendar. But there's also an aspect of going into a role where you can bring your full self and where it really aligns. And like I said earlier, I was always that person who was like, you know, the the trying to volunteer and organizing the blood drive and whatever it may be. And so this was also a role that I could be really passionate about. And those two things is, is how I came into um, the nonprofit world. Got it. Yeah. So do you have more of a life now? Can we just jump to that? Because <laughs> I sort of stuck out. It's funny. Thank God I have more of a life. But, you know, we we say, and this is something that's the balance of Jewish women in business, like my life just looks really different. I, I moved to the OU when I was actually, I was about to get engaged. I was single. And so like my life from five, I always joke, the five to seven is like the biggest change. Thank God when you, if you become a parent, if you're, if you're lucky enough to become a parent, whereas like in the city, I was living in the Upper West Side, like five to seven is like your happy hour. It's your gym time. It's your, you know, it's your something. And now I joke with, when there's a woman who I'm working with for work or, or anyone and they're like, can you speak at six? I like laugh at them. I'm like, what's like, how can you speak at 6 p.m.? Which is actually a point that I hope to get to later in terms of communal leadership and women. But I'm like, how can you speak at 6 p.m.? Like five to seven is like, you know, the marathon to bedtime. Um, yeah, and then as the kid the kids get older, that starts pushing past seven. <laughs> That's, I'm at the age where my kids go to sleep after me. So yeah, it, it, it is fun stuff. But so let, let's talk about the idea of women in, in communal leadership, because when you and I were kind of bouncing around topics and discussing, you know, what, what do we want to get into with this podcast? How do we want to take advantage of our conversation? This idea came up of, are there enough women in communal leadership and in our community? Do you feel that it is something that we need to really get out there as an issue? A thousand percent. And before we talk more about this topic, I do want to caveat that I'm sharing perspectives, opinions that I've seen and been a part of just from the different roles I've had and the different people I've met. There are organizations that are looking into this further, one being the Walder Foundation based out of Chicago, where they did an entire research project on women in the community and being communal leadership. And so if you're looking for more, you know, research or like the facts around it, there are places to look and maybe Sivia, we can share them as well. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. 
And I'll share a lot of the, like I said, like a lot of the different thoughts and things that have happened um, that I just see from the different roles that I've had in the communal world. And now even working with people who are not in the communal world, who maybe could work in the communal world, we'll get there too. Um, and some of the challenges to that. So I do think that the, the current, the, do we need more women who are working in the communal world? And the answer is yes, because I think we need more women everywhere. But the way in which women invo- are involved is also a big issue in terms of there are a lot of women involved in the communal world. If you go to an organization and you see, you know, how many women are working here, you may see a lot, maybe even more women. But if we think about the the highest leadership positions, the board positions, the top donor positions, there are more men than women. And again, like this is from the perspectives of looking at many different, you know, donor pamphlets and seeing who's involved, looking at different board organizations and seeing who's on the board. There are more men than women. And there are different reasons that I think this comes about. We can get in, we can get into that in a moment, but I think it would be great to have quality over quantity, right? Women in these other positions as well, where they're not as typically found. So why do you think that is? Let's let's start with that. One thing that we we actually just were touching on this is that we think about this a lot when we think about women's engagement and we think about where people are at. And I've actually had this conversation recently with my husband. And I was like, for a man in general throughout his life, especially in the Jewish world, their schedule, for the most part, not is, is mostly the same from when they're single to when they're married to different stages of life, right? Like they get up, they dive in, they, they have a certain schedule. A woman is more, I think, like fully engaged in whatever stage she's going in. So for example, if a woman is you know, I have a friend who's engaged and she's like in la la land that she's engaged. And it's like, okay, but she's like so completely in that. Her her fiance's schedule pretty much looks the same as it did before he's engaged. It's going to look the same after married. And the same thing when someone gets married. And I was trying to explain to my husband, I'm like, when a woman is postpartum, like, thank God, if she has the opportunity to have a child and be postpartum, like it is consuming her everything. And so Because of that, I think that the way that we engage women and think about what they're going through is something that we need to be mindful of when we're talking about free time, especially if we're talking about board membership or about volunteering opportunities for women. So for example, we just mentioned that that 5 to 7 p.m. time is like a hilarious time for women or, or for men too. It could be for men too, but let's make sure then to not set board meetings at a time that's not conducive, you know, to when women could, can theoretically meet. Also free time looks different. So for example, I, last night, actually, I had a meeting with someone who's volunteers for the JWE at 9.30 p.m. And for, it sounds funny. For me, I actually appreciated it because I was like, my kids are asleep. It's a good time for me. And it was a good time for her. But it's hard to create that flexibility. It's hard to ask someone else to work it, to work at 9.30 p.m. But that is a good time, almost like needing that, you know, asynchronous time for women to get involved. The other piece is that in our community, there are the community itself, right? Let's talk about a synagogue. There are different roles that we feel for women and men. And some people may say a woman or a man could be a rabbi. Some people say only a man could be a rabbi. And so with that, you have a certain leadership positions already, which are designated for men. And so I think that there needs to be an awareness of creating the specific opportunities that would make sense for women. So for example, if we're saying that there's a organization that has a rabbi role and in that organization, that should be a man, then thinking about, could there be an operational role? Could there be a different type of role to that, that a woman could fill as well 
in order to create the roles for women and men. And so something that I found in comparing my, the secular world and working now in the Jewish world is that anyone can be the CEO of a finance company, theoretically. Like there's no reason why it could or couldn't be a man. There are certain roles in our community that we do believe need to be a man or maybe even in some cases need to be a woman. But being aware of that and then building around that, I think is something that also is, is something to be mindful of. Another piece that I'll say, and it's just a, an anecdote, but it's funny, even just to change our mindsets of why are women not involved or why are we not reaching them out, et cetera, is when I was at the OU, I remember thinking, if we're talking, the OU is obviously the Orthodox Union. So speaking specifically to the Orthodox community and the larger Jewish community to an extent as well, but even there, I'd say, why can't we get a message to the entire Orthodox community? Theoretically, if you were to go to every single shul at every single synagogue and have a message through there, every person in theory would be associated with the synagogue in order to get a message out. And that's an in theory. I have the same, actually, I think that if we could do the same through community WhatsApp groups, we could probably reach everyone because there's so many community WhatsApp groups. That's for another time. But in short, this came to head on a project that we were working on during COVID with one of my colleagues, and he wanted to do a campaign about mental health. And we were, and he was talking about putting posters or some type of signage in synagogues. And I said to him, you know, that's great, but I don't even know if he realized that he was reaching half of the community. During COVID, again, I was working at the Orthodox community at the time, so catering more to the Orthodox world, even though there is a larger world and more to discuss there. But at the time I said to them, you're reaching half of the population. Women, especially during COVID, were not going to synagogues. And so anything that they were learning or hearing about was through word of mouth, through their husbands and for single women or women who didn't have, you know, someone who in their family who was going to synagogue for whatever reason, not hearing it at all. And still obviously the same effect because that's if they decided to share that message. So when I was working with him, I was trying to think about, well, where are women and how do you reach all women? And the truth is it's hard. It's not as cut and paste because like I said earlier, women in different stages of their life, they are fully in different places. And so I think that's just something as, again, I don't have the answers, but some of the things that we think about in terms of how are we reaching the women, how are we engaging them and how are we getting them involved? It's thinking about, you know, is the schedule we're setting up for people to be involved conducive to their schedule? Are we very mindful of the roles that already are inherent and then the roles that we maybe need to build around that? And are we thinking about where women are, which is different? So how would you explain to somebody who may not feel the same way, why it's important to sort of challenge the status quo here? Why is it important for us to invest in women taking on more leadership roles? And as a second part to that question, then what does that even mean? It's so funny you say this because I had a conversation with someone recently who is a very wealthy philanthropist in the Chicago community and he runs different businesses and I was meeting with him about the JWE. So obviously he was speaking to me about women in business and he said, he's like, Jewish women get it done like nothing else. They have too many things that they, they have going on. They need to be efficient. They need to be effective. They have to think about the most productive way to do things. And so he's like, I would, I, him, he's like, I'd rather hire a woman who can get all of her work done between 10 and three than someone who needs the nine to five because they're figuring out how to do it quicker. It's, it's a kind of a new hire company. <laughs> <laughs> Literally that. 
your entire yeah. company of women who are probably yeah. they're figuring it out. There, but there's different like big Fortune 500 managers who will say they want to hire people who are like entrepreneurial in that way and think about let's say the best or the fastest, the best way to do something because they know that they'll find the best solutions. And even more so is at our conference, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment because that's that fun project we're collaborating on. I was speaking with one of our speakers who is a successful successful in the corporate world about a topic. And I said to her, I was like, ah, being the women in the room, the only woman at the table, it's like, I feel like we've done that. People get it. They're the only woman at the table, whatever. So I was like, what's a topic that you think really is unique about Jewish women in the corporate world? And she said exactly this. She said, having that entrepreneurial mindset that comes along with the way that we operate in our community, like Jews are scrappy. We've always had to be because we're moving around, we're figuring out new businesses and this and that. And she said, women are as well. And so the topic is actually embracing an entrepreneurial mindset in the corporate world, thinking about how these, these tools that we have to multitask, to be productive, to think of new ways and the best ways of doing things in order to be able to do all the things that we have in our life is actually the topic that she'll be speaking about. But that exact perspective, I think is something that uniquely Jewish women bring to the table and help can help organizations tremendously. In addition, like I said before, bringing, bringing that perspective of, well, if you're going to do something in the synagogues, how are you reaching the women? That perspective needs to be brought to the table across many projects that we do in terms of how are we reaching our full community? And the last piece I'll say here is talent. So at the JWE conference, our closing panel, our dinner, I like to think of it as the quote unquote, so what? Like the, why are you doing everything you're doing? And it's a panel that we have, and we can probably go into it more. We have a full, a big philanthropist, someone who is very involved from a board perspective and someone who actually leveraged her professional spirit experience and now started a nonprofit. And they're going to be speaking about the ways in which they get involved and kind of promoting women to get involved. But I actually said this when I was speaking with a a potential donor once. I said, we're going to be sitting with a room of four to 500 women, many of whom who have built successful businesses. Sivia, yourself included, you built a very successful business. But they had skills and talents and tools and ideas that are unique in terms of how they built their businesses. The communal world needs that advice. They need those skills. They need that experience for how we can build our communal institutions. How can we better build our schools? How can we better build you know, our mikvahs? How can we better build our other nonprofit organizations that are engaging and helping people, whatever it may, may be? These women are talented and they have unique talents. And like we need, we need their help also in our community. So those are just a few of the reasons why I think um, women can get, should get more involved. Or could get more. Let, let's go to the part two of the question. What does it actually mean to invest in women in, in the idea of, I guess, enabling women or helping women, facilitating them to be more a part of communal leadership? Great question. And I, I think the first way is the schedule thing. I mean, this came up a lot in some of the past roles I've had is the schedule piece is a big piece that's underrated. Being aware of when you're having your meetings or when you're you know, you're doing things is number one, because it, it, not number one, I don't want to say it's number one, but it's a big factor because when someone asks about a time commitment to what is it, you know, you're asking someone to be on your board, what does it take to be on your board? Well, we have a monthly board meeting and it's at this time. You may not even get further in the conversation with a person if they can't make that time. And so even if it's every other month doing it at a different time or allowing for asynchronous ways for people to be engaged, I think that's a place to start. 
Another piece is, is also just raising the uh, invest. How do we invest in it? It's raising awareness that this is possible. And so that's why at our conference, we specifically have people from these different perspectives talking about how they got involved and why they got involved and, and more tips of how to do it. Because we come from a place where traditionally the women are not as involved, there's a lot of which we're thinking about throughout is you can't be what you don't see. And so I think that there are some women who aren't even thinking about joining a board to the point that we actually have an example of a leading woman in our network who is very successful in business, has made a lot of money. And once she reached that success, an organization called her husband to be on the board. And one of our other senior leaders said, why didn't they call you? But the point being, it's, it may not even be the fault of that person who called. We need to just get into the, the mindset of always saying, this is what's possible, which is what we at the JWE, I, I'm not trying to plug JWE too much, maybe just a little, but we at the JWE are thinking about in terms of both the business opportunity and also the communal opportunity. And I have one of our senior leaders who was on our board. She constantly says to me, she's like, we're setting the stage for the next generation. And again, not to promote that women need to be in business and not to promote that women need to be focusing on something rather than their home or whatever it may be, but that whatever they want to do, it's possible and how. So, and the same thing with leadership is women, they may not even think that, oh, once they may not even know it's an opportunity for them. And so raising awareness that this is something you could do if you'd like, if you have free time, if your cup is already overflowing and you feel like you're good about the other responsibilities you have in your life, this is an opportunity for you to get involved as a philanthropist, to get involved as a board member, to get involved as a volunteer. And we may not just not be thinking in that way. So that those are really important points. And I, I just want to touch on something. But first, I just want to clarify, I keep referring to this conference. So May 16th, the JW Women's Conference, I was excited to get involved in the marketing. Um, I think it's an amazing, amazing thing for women to talk about this topic and many, many other topics. I don't think for women have enough of an opportunity to really learn from each other and network. I, I think that a lot of people don't even know about the level of success that from women have been able to achieve. And it's very inspirational to see that. So I think it's fantastic and amazing. I'm just wondering as we're talking, if there, in terms of this larger conversation about investing in women as communal leaders, that there has to be a step above that because we can't just keep the women in a vacuum. My experience with events have been, they're generally men. And then some of them have like, you know, women can come and you can sit behind the, the partition and very rarely have women spoken. And obviously this opens up a larger Hushkafta conversation, which, you know, I, I don't know if we can get into it. It's, it's a co very complicated discussion, but putting that aside for a second, because I think that there is enough space in, you know, in our community where this is acceptable Hushkafically to say that we need more events that are going to partner the idea of, of men and women and not just like, okay, women talk to women, men talk to women. We really have to get together and talk about this as something that will bring awareness, not only to the women as a possibility, but to the men as a possibility. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, a, a thousand percent. I think that the focus of our conference, like we said, is that, and this is what I say often when I think about what we're doing. If you're in a certain trade, you could go to a trade conference. You could go to a million and one different types of conference. But the reason why women are generally coming to our conference is because of that aspect of bringing their whole selves and having that aspect of you can't be what you don't see, feeling that validation. I posted this sometimes on LinkedIn is like sometimes just having a woman who you know has been through it saying like, I get it and it's hard. 
is is like all you need. So the con this conference, I think more than anything, is meant to raise awareness. It's prevent to provide tactical skills for how to do things, and I'll detail one specifically for the communal world in a moment. But it's also a little bit meant to be that physical and inspiration for Jewish women in whatever field they're in. And then also it's not meant to replace all of your conference going for no. the year. And trust yeah, me. And just to clarify, I think that's amazing. I just think we have to talk about an additional step as to like, well, once we've, once we've given everyone that feels like everyone is on board and they know it, what are we doing? How are we taking that information to the world at large? Exactly. And I think those are conversations that in part are definitely happening. And I'm very impressed with what I've seen at the Orthodox Union in terms of how they've been trying to make changes to include more women on their board. And I'm sure are their organizations as well. And even if even my role, you know, as a senior leader at the Orthodox Union, they are very much trying to do that. But it's obviously through consistent conversations and the efforts because it's not going to happen. Anything you want to happen, you need to work for. And like we said, fortunately, unfortunately, or maybe it's just the system of where we're coming from and where we're going. More than anything, we need to be intentional about it. We need to be intentional about wearing, when are the board meetings. We need to be intentional about when we're asking for help, the type of help that we're asking and things like that. And so that takes work. Being intentional takes work and it happens around the table. So I think you're right. I think those, those conversations definitely do need to happen as well. But the important thing being is if we keep on raising awareness that this needs to happen and then also facilitate those conversations where we're being intentional about it and slowly, slowly make changes to, you know, one thing and then another and then another, I think we can see a meaningful change. Absolutely. I think we're doing it right now, right? We're starting our conversation, putting it out there. I think a lot of people who are listening may not have even thought about this as potentially an issue or something that needs to be changed. So I think that's, we're doing a great first step right here. I'm excited about that. Uh, So I would love to hear from you, if you had any personal experiences in terms of maybe a challenge that you faced as, you know, being a woman in in a leadership role in this space and, you know, if so, how you've overcome that. And then on the flip side, really positive experiences that are always nice to share as well. Yeah, for sure. There are certain challenges that I've had and also I think are persistent. And so, for example, fundraising in general, and this and this is a hard, it's a hard thing to do in general. And no matter what, it's a sales role, right? You're selling, you're selling. And so with that, and anyone who's in a sales role know that you have, you know, it's client focused and things like that. In general, in a lot of our community, the men are being ones who are being fundraised from, right? They're oftentimes the ones who are controlling the wallet and giving. And I think that I struggled with, let's say I was texting, even just texting alone, right? A man who could potentially be a donor or was a donor. And it's, and it's professional, right? It's, this is my work. It's, I'm a profession. Maury Litwack from the OU actually recently put a LinkedIn post about how nonprofit work is a profession. Some people in the JWE, they're not even aware of that, which talk about, you know, awareness. They think I'm volunteering. I'm like, there's a lot of hours to be volunteering. But okay. So it's a profession. And so I'm, but however, there's something to be aware of that I'm very aware of, but I still find it a challenge that I would not be texting a man who's my neighbor. But theoretically, this person couldn't be my neighbor. And so being aware of that as we build out, as we think about fundraising in the nonprofit world is something to be mindful of is that for a woman or for a man, it may be uncomfortable that the ways that like, let's say we're trying to finalize something and we're on the phone a lot or whatever else. It's something that I would do professionally. I would do it. Let's say if I was in the secular, back in my old jobs, I would do it with a colleague. I'd be on the phone with them at different hours. It is purely professional. But when that person is also your neighbor or someone in your community, or, you know, even think about like, some, like someone's husband, that's a challenge. 
And it can be a challenge, not that you're building a relationship that's inappropriate, just that in general, texting someone of the opposite sex can be strange. In our community, we have certain community norms. So I always, so I did struggle a bit with those, that balance between this is my professional life, but this is also my personal life. And that's the part of being in the Jewish communal world. Something actually specifically at our conference is the panel that we have, which is about fundraising from men in the Jewish communal world, being a female fundraiser, fundraising from men and tips and tactics from people who are very successful at it in terms of how they've dealt with that. I think I'm always about, you know, takeaways and how to make this practical. I think from the perspective here of making this practical from the woman, you can come to our conference and learn more for the panel, but also here's, you know, figuring out what are those boundaries that you, that you have in terms of, do you stop a certain, at a certain time at night texting, or, you know, do you make your calls on early jury hours and how do you navigate the fact that this relationship can be considered personal as well? And the other pieces for families is to include women in those fundraising decisions and in those fundraising meetings in order to, and have them have a say or have the, I mean, to the extent that you'd like, or have them be part of these conversations in order to allow for the woman fundraiser to be more successful because they're now meeting with a couple of someone of the both, both genders. So those lines are, have been very difficult, not very difficult, but are just something again, to be intentional about the same thing with relationships at work. And so it's a funny thing. And I, and I don't hope I'm not divulging too much here. But when I was working in FinTech, it was very normal to have lunch with a colleague. But there was also certain lines. Like I never went out to drinks after work with my colleagues. I was different. You know, I I knew that I was different. And sometimes it's easier to just be completely different. Whereas when you're in a place where everyone is, you know, kind of your friend, we're all neighbors, we're all family, but they're also your colleagues. Is it normal to have lunch with someone of the opposite gender? You know, and maybe in the community, like I said, I would never have lunch with a friend's husband, but maybe professionally you would have lunch with them. And so, again, those relationships and figuring them out are something to be intentional about. The other thing that I mentioned earlier is being aware of the timing of things and the different stages that women are at in their lives, especially because in our community, many people are having many, many children and maybe in, you know, maternity leaves or or have young children in general. And so I actually have a good friend. I mean, there's a group of three of us. There's more people who are doing this than three of us, but we have a WhatsApp group between three of my friends who are all high-level positions in relatively big nonprofits. And we all have little kids specifically. And the reason why that we shared this is that having those challenges at the same time is very hard. And those challenges being, you know, how to navigate when you want to just meet someone right after work, but like you really need to be home. And I'd say, and I say the reason why we're uniquely in this position is that people in more junior roles, they may deal with it in a different way. If someone has like a very defined nine to five or nine to four, then they're usually out at nine to four. In the more senior roles, your schedule has to be a little bit more flexible just because you're meeting with lay leadership or you're doing this and you're doing that. And then also, like we said, like in general, and this is something I've been very passionate about since joining the JWE, is that the different stage of we life can be more conducive or less conducive to work in life in general. So work-life balance and working when you have little children or even the emotional toil of older children or the emotional toil of you know, dealing with fertility or whatever it may be in the workplace for being single, looking for your, for your husband in the workplace is hard. But physically, it's very hard, let's say on a time basis. And so that's a challenge that I think probably many people who are working and have little kids have on those like physical demands of where you need to be when. 
But I think it's also, it's definitely a problem or a challenge in the nonprofit world when you want to be meeting lay leadership when their free time is when you, it's also like your free time, you know, you're working your nine to five, but then they're volunteering. So they're working nine to nine to five too, and you need to meet them at their free time. That's also your free time. And so figuring out the best ways around that is a big, is a, is a challenge. And it's something that we're consistent, that we consistently work towards. And I, I feel very thankful that at the JWE, our schedule is very, very flexible. I always say like, there's definitely a good, a lot of work to do each day. But like, if I theoretically wanted to pull an all nighter to do it, like nobody would care if I'm answering the, you know, the emails at 3 PM or at 11 PM, still a lot of work and it's a challenge. And one more just piece on, on that and having Klizuk and, and support and inspiration from people around you who are in the same role. And one of the reasons for this WhatsApp group is one of my friends who's particularly in this role when she was negotiating um, a director position at an important nonprofit. She told them, she said, I need to be out of the office by 3 p.m. every day, no stops. And she asked for it. And which again, negotiation and asking for what you need in general is something that can be a challenge for women. She asked for it and she got it. And so this organization, to their credit, was able to make those changes that she needed to be home when she needed to be home. And she makes it up at night. And like like all of these women in different positions are doing, but just being aware that is a challenge. And it's something that we're, again, consistently being intentional to work through. So I like to ask this question because I feel like things always evolve over time, but I think COVID was a massive disruptor for every single industry. And I personally have seen so much evolution since COVID. So I'm curious to hear how you, you got into the nonprofit world before COVID and now it's like a post-COVID world where, you know, things are, are kind of getting back into some form of normal, whatever that looks like. Have you seen any shifts in, I think particular, and you mentioned a couple of times, asynchronous work and, and things like that. Is there anything notable that you have seen evolve in the last few years? Certainly the asynchronous work and flexible remote um, work schedules and remote work. It's a fact that it's obviously increased. And so the funny thing is I had my daughter, I had my, my first, my daughter right before COVID and my maternity leave ended. I think it was supposed to be like April 1st, 2020. And I ended up coming back like two weeks early because we were having meetings every day about like, is the office closing? Is it not closing? Fine. So then once I came back, I had the struggle. There were obviously no daycares or anything that where I was trying to work full time and also watch her full time. And she was four months old at the time. But I also remember thinking I was living in Woodmere at the time that all the offices were in Manhattan I don't know how I would have done it. I was getting a train at 7 a.m. every day. And if I came home, it was probably, you know, between five and six o'clock, if not later. And so I asked my friends who did have children and also traveled to Manhattan. And she said, she's like, I don't see my kids much, you know, during those days that she didn't have to go every day, but during those days. And so I feel so fortunate that I never even had to figure that out because I'm certain I wouldn't have been able to stay as long as I did. And that's obviously particular to New York and, and where you have these long commutes and trains and everything like that. I wonder how much that's impacted more people who maybe they otherwise wouldn't have been able to keep up with their roles, but have been able to keep up with their roles because there is the option of remote work at least once in a while. I have been to, like I said, be an extrovert. So I, I wish I could, I wish I had an office to go back to and wish I could be more in person. But I definitely think it's increased opportunities. And I think there's an aspect of also leveraging those opportunities more. So for example, even with the JWE, I, I don't think that virtual can ever replace the community and the types of connections that you're getting in person. And this is a reason why we're so excited about the conference and bringing it back. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like being in a room with 500 other women who are like you and who get it and everything like that. However, there is a lot more that can be done to nurture that community virtually. And I think 
it's amazing. It's also hard because so many people are on different, you know, some people are on WhatsApp or Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn and they're in different places, but there is a lot more nurture that can be done to keep these communities together and feeling strong in between these large events. I think that I guess I'll just be vulnerable and share a little bit about the JWE is that their conference was canceled two years in a row during COVID. And so when they came back out in January, 2022, they started with these in-person monthly events. Basically, it was like, what are we if not our conference? And they were trying to capture a little bit of that magic back. And while in-person monthly events are everything and so much, small events can't replace large events. Virtual can't replace either. But using the mix of mediums has allowed for so many more people to get involved in things. And a few other examples I'll share is even on the accelerator is our first two years. We So the, the OU Impact Accelerator is a... It's really a six-month curriculum for new nonprofit founders to get like an acceleration in starting. And so the idea being is that at one point, Hatsala, you know, any organization we see highlight find, they were small. So how do we cre- help facilitate the creation of these household names that can be very effective in our community? And thank God, now looking back five years ago from when we started, there are a few organizations that have become big and almost like, you know, household names in our community, and they go through this curriculum with the OU. The first year, the way we ran it was we had four three-day in-person sessions, and we required that all of the people who were coming had to be able to come in for these four three-day sessions, which is a lot. Our second year was COVID, so we asked people of it. By the time we started the curriculum, it was all virtual. I remember the whole year we're like, when we get in person, like, you know, everyone was doing that that year. We never ended up in person. And then our third year, we built a curriculum around being virtual, but also being very intentional, again, intentional, but about being outside Zoom. And so the way that we designed the curriculum was I wanted to be thoughtful about what's the way that you can connect and nurture this community that's outside of the Zoom screen, which can sometimes be passive or be tired. And so I wanted to create a design where you could be going on a walk, you know, being outside or whatever, but you would be on the phone with maybe someone else from the cohort and just discussing things you know, what was a way that you, and so we had something called like partners of the week where you would have those opportunities or what were ways that you could connect with the group as a whole that again, were outside this classroom time to not make up for the in-person. There's nothing like an in-person event, but make up and nurture this community. And then we were able to meet, I believe twice in person with that cohort, but using the virtual throughout. And the reason I share that whole long story is because we were able to work with people who were further away because we were not requiring them to be in person every six weeks at the OU office. They had to be there, you know, twice over a six month period. So I think those opportunities, and there's other programs I know of in the nonprofit world that originally had their program, you had to be in New York, let's say, and then they were able to expand. And like we said, there's pros and cons with everything, but it does, it also has opened up, I think the Jewish community a little bit more to outside the tri-state area, be able to connect with organizations that are happening throughout the tri-state area. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to get more people involved. For sure. I love that. So I, this is a really like just big topic. And I think it's important that we started, but I always like to bring the conversation down to a really, really practical level. So if someone is listening and they're like, you know what, this is really important. I never thought of that. What, what can I do? So what advice would you give to someone who, you know, either a man or a woman who's in a position of being able to support women taking on a more communal leadership roles? What advice would you give them? What can they do on a very practical level? Yeah, I'll start thinking about in general. There's a, there's a book that's been recommended to me a few times. I've started it. In general, I haven't finished it. It's called Doing Good Better. 
And the premise of it, again, from the parts that I read, is thinking about how can you create the biggest impact given who you are? So for some people, that's working as a nonprofit professional. For some people, that's maybe giving money and you know making a lot of money and then giving a lot of money. For some people, that's maybe giving a lot of time. So just in general, opening your mind to thinking about, you know, there's, I'm part of a community, I have myself and I have my own priorities, but once your cup is full or a little bit overflowing, just turning your mind to thinking about, I am part of a larger community. What is the best way for me to engage with that? Like we said, it could be volunteering. It could be joining a board. It could be giving money. It could be maybe you wake up, you know, like I did and be like, maybe I should become a nonprofit professional. And just think having that mindset in general, I think is something really practical to just ask yourself, am I giving back to the community in the way I'd like? And it could be for someone that means hosting Shabbat dinners and, you know, and or welcoming people to their synagogue. But for other people, maybe they have a little bit more and they could be involved. So that's the first thing. The second thing in terms of people investing in this and thinking about that is if, especially if you are already in the communal world in any way, is thinking about the way in which you engage in the communal world and just, and just think about what it is. So for example, if you're a nonprofit leader, just think about what are the way we, what are we engaged? What is it right now that we engage with the women at our company? And what is it right now, the way that we engage with board members at our company, or, you know, as we're soliciting people at our company and not even before you do things, but again, you have to be able to name the problem or ident- not, I don't say problem, but you have to be able to be aware of what is even happening currently to then even think about, oh, is this something that may not make sense? Or is this, you know, is this something that doesn't work? And I think that once that's done. And again, just thinking about when are our board meetings? You know, how often do we require people to be in the office versus being remote? And just, just like, like I said, just doing a review of what you already do. When we're at the OU Accelerator, I always say this is time to work on your business rather than in it. So having like that little bit of thinking about working on your business or on your communal job, if you're a donor, just thinking about, oh, you know, I do mostly like to, you know, meet with this person at that time. Maybe that's hard for them. Let just, just, like the, and then a and subtle then, mindset shift. Yeah. But, but like it, before you even shift your mindset, just being aware of that, like I was just put, I was just throwing out a time to me, you know, I didn't even think about the fact that I'm always throwing out 6 PM, you know, like, like just very simple like that, I think is a first way to start just to be aware of like, what are these ways that we engage? And it could be some people are like, wow, pat on the back. You're doing a really great job at like saying to them, when's a good time for you? And then being available. Or maybe you're not doing such a great job, at, you know, because you're trying to meet at 7 p.m., whatever it may be. And then the next step is either thinking through maybe one of these things that we said, meeting at different times, including more virtual work, thinking about ways that we can be, people can be involved. If you're a donor, having your wife included in your meetings, uh, or if you're a board member, including your wife, your decisions, maybe having your wife be a board member. If you're single also and you have capacity to be thinking about joining boards more and thinking about, you know, if you have, if you have that capacity to do that. So thinking through that in general, just where am I not and where am I? I think just, but starting out at first, just realizing what is the system we have. And the last piece of that is if you need help, ask someone, you know, like I'm very fortunate, like I said, at the OU that I had a few female role models to look up to. Rachel Sims is the head of the chief legal officer. Adina Schmidt is the head of the women's initiative. And they were like role models to me. And I could ask them for help in terms of navigating certain things. But they also had a lot of good advice to both the, the board and also myself in terms of what are the best way to navigate these things. So if you are someone who once you've looked at your schedule and you're like, oh, is this good or is this not good? And you don't know, ask someone. 
you know, or comes a day conference and you could yeah. exactly. <laughs> but like, exactly. Okay. so if someone wants to contact you to talk about this more, learn more, come to the conference, et cetera, et cetera, what's the best way to reach you? Okay. My email is Jenna, J-E-N-N-A at the JWE.com, T-H-E-J-W-E.com. You can go to our website, the JWE.com. There's info about the conference. Like we said earlier, it's May 16th. We're really discussing a lot of topics, industry specific, like we said, specific to the nonprofit world and many other industries in business. We have our communal panel specific, you know, here and a lot of just ways of thinking about personal and professional development for women. So that's, that's how you can learn more. Okay, great. So before we sign off, I know we did the practical parts, but in one sentence, can you give me the main takeaway that you want people to get from listening to this episode? You can go to two if you must. (laughs) No, let me see. I'm like, I said the word intentional like 10 times. Should I say it once more? But maybe, yeah. that's, I love that word. Intentional and meaningful. I use those a lot. So. I think I would say trying to be intentional or rather trying to be thoughtful about the best way that you could be a member of the community and also being intentional about once, once you decide on that engagement or once you already are engaged, being intentional about the ways in which you engage. So like we said, the times or, you know, how you're reaching out and things like that. But I think both thinking about, am I involved in the community as much as I like to be? And just opening your eyes to like, well, I could be involved in the community. And then once you are, or if you are, just thinking about the ways in which you are. Amazing. Jenna, thank you so much. This is a really great conversation. Thank you so much, Sivia. This is so much fun. Like we said it would be. Yes, we knew it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.